I am speaking to you at a moment of grave crisis. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall. It's a series about history. Not the ancient past, but history that's still hot to the touch. In this first season, I explore a revolutionary political movement that brought a modern democracy to the brink. You can find Recall, How to Start a Revolution, on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Ian Hanamansing. Welcome to Checkup's Ask Me Anything podcast. And today you're going to hear about COVID variants, boosters and RSV and what's to come this fall. World Health Organization is keeping a close eye on that new strain known as EG.5. The virus continues to circulate in all countries and it continues to change. Everybody's tired of it. You know, I'm tired of it too, but it's still out there and it still can be potentially dangerous. We can reasonably expect that there will be a fall increase in cases. The World Health Organization has declared a new COVID Omicron strain, a variant of interest. It's known as EG.5, and it's on the rise here in Canada. The news comes as Canadians are starting to think about back-to-school plans and what COVID might bring this fall. And with that in mind, Canada's national vaccine advisors are recommending updated booster shots this fall that will specifically target the Omicron sublineage. And that is the focus of this week's Ask Me Anything. Our AMA guest is Dr. Lenora Saxinger. She's an infectious disease physician at the University of Alberta. Dr. Saxinger answered questions about the new variant, how to protect yourself as fall approaches, and here are a few highlights from the show. It's been a while, Dr. Saxinger, since I've had a chance to speak with you. Thank you very much for taking up our invitation. My pleasure. It's always slightly terrifying with asking <laughs> But you always handle it so well. Uh, let me start by asking you about this new subvariant EG.5. What can you tell us about it? Well, I mean, it's, it's yet another Omicron offshoot. And so pretty much since the beginning of 2022, it's been Omicron all the time, all the way with many different, um, I guess, as a virus passes through populations, it accumulates mutations. And so um, in different places and at different times, you get quite a variety of different strains can be present. And what happens sometimes is if one of these strains is a little bit more talented than the others in terms of being able to infect people, it becomes a dominant strain. And so the XBB lineages, which are the ones that the booster vaccine this fall is going to be targeted to, have been you know, increasing over the past months. And so that was a good pick. And this is actually a subvariant of one of the XBB variants um, that appears to be a little bit extra good at spreading. And thus, you know, in a lot of places, it seems to be the one that's kind of taking over in terms of circulating variants. And in Canada as well, um, not all places have the d- data teased out yet, but it looks like it's going to be exactly the same story where this will likely be the dominant strain here as well. So it is more successful in in replicating itself or spreading than other uh, variants. But in terms of its strength, its ability, you know, its ability to to spread, uh, are we seeing any signs that it that more people are getting COVID because of the subvariant than otherwise would? 
You know, that that's, I mean, that is the question, which is, you know, we, we might see an uptick in cases for a variety of reasons. Um, um, and, you know, because we're going to the fall and people will be congregating. Um, the, the big question is, is this variant more talented at causing severe infection? And is it going to cause more infections than would have otherwise occurred? And I think that there is kind of a suggestion from some places that with this variant becoming dominant, they are seeing increased reports of infection. Um, it's less clear if it causes more severe infection. And so that's something that's going to be watched very closely. It, it doesn't so far appear to necessarily, but the reporting has really changed and it takes a little while to kind of get the picture um, between places. Um, so it it but it does seem like it might actually be a little bit more likely to infect you upon exposure. I guess the other thing that people should think about is, you know, we're going into this fall with a community, a population that's had a number of vaccines, a number of infections and kind of the population wall of immunity um, is kind of a concept I think about when we're looking at what might be a surge. I, I think that, you know, even though the numbers are going up, if you compare the numbers even of hospitalizations right now to earlier in the pandemic, it remains very, very low, um, which is reassuring overall. And, you know, the scary thing would be if we saw a variant emerge that had like a clear signal of more severe infection, which fortunately this doesn't appear to be the case at this point. Janet Wees is uh, calling us from Calgary. Hi, Janet. Hi. What's your question for Dr. Saxinger? My question is... For the people who have had their shots six or seven months ago and want to get a booster because their immunity is waning, you can only get a booster in Alberta, according to the drugstores, if you're over 65 or if you're under 65 and immunocompromised. Mm -hmm. And you you can't get a booster to stay safe for the next two months even. Uh, I don't understand the reasoning. Okay, Janet, thank you for your call. You know, I want to, I'm going to change the question a little bit because uh, Dr. Saxinger is here as an infectious disease specialist and not as someone who is sort of analyzing public health policy. I mean, Dr. Saxinger, you can answer the question however you want, but, but I think I might change the question a little bit to this, and that is somebody who's thinking about getting a booster right now, Dr. Saxinger, um, if they're in a place in the country where they can get it, should they still be waiting until the fall for a booster that is more directed towards the subvariant? And I mean, that's actually a really common concern and a common question, especially if people haven't had a vaccine or haven't had, you know, infection and um, boosted immunity for the last six months or so. People are starting to wonder. Um, I, I would point out a couple of things. One thing is the... Um, in the past, we've seen that when people get a booster or um, even their first vaccination, if it was done very, very close to prior immunologic exposure, it appears to possibly blunt the response. And so it is likely that if people were getting boosters now, um, they would probably be advised then to wait at least four to six months before getting the XBB booster which would put you in a position of hoping that the boosted immunity with the current product is as good um, or, you know, overall a net benefit um, compared to waiting until the XBB booster is available. And I think that probably some of the recommendations right now are based on the current um, risk, which remains actually the lowest it's been in quite a long time. That has to be watched really closely, I would have to say, because it certainly could be that if we had a delay in the availability of the XBB boosters, or if we had a surge um, that actually turned out to be more severe and was affecting a particular group, 
it might make sense for public health to recommend a specific group get boosted with the bivalent boosters again. But across the board, it really does look like a better bet, at least for right now, based on our current risk scenario, to wait for the XBB booster because it should offer a much better response to the current circulating variants, including the EG5 um, variant. I suppose <laughs> the thing the thing for them is, you know, be in touch with their primary healthcare provider, right? Like to kind of navigate all those details you talked about, like when did they likely have their last infection? When did they have their last booster? What are their risk factors? Um, does it make sense for them to wait for the next booster? Um, and and I guess uh, that the primary healthcare provider can help a patient navigate through that. Hopefully. And I mean, also local public health units will probably be putting out more information, as, especially if there appears to be a signal of increased risk. At the moment, I think that it's likely that the vast majority of people, you're better off waiting Mm -hmm. um, because it's not an elevated risk scenario to the same degree as it's been in the past. And, and forgive me if you said this and I missed it, but do we have any sense of when that booster is going to be widely available? I, I mean, the last I heard, there was hope to be available in October, um, and that would be nice. Like if it was available in October, early November, it would actually kind of mimic the availability of flu shots and it is also to be hoped and has been suggested that people might be able to get both those at the same time, which is a very efficient way to do it. And anything that makes something more efficient and less of a barrier practically is a good thing. I'm speaking to you at a moment of grave crisis. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall. It's a series about history, not the ancient past, but history that's still hot to the touch. In this first season, I explore a revolutionary political movement that brought a modern democracy to the brink. You can find Recall, How to Start a Revolution on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. David Padden is calling us from Toronto. Hi, David. Hi there. How are you? Good, good. What's your question for Dr. Saxinger? Uh, we have had the original generation of COVID tests that were given out free uh, and paid for by the Ontario government since uh, the very beginning of uh, the pandemic. And as we've had variations, I keep wondering if it's uh, still going to be effective, especially since when it started, people, uh, especially experts on the CBC, would say uh, they might miss it if you have it. If you are indicated that you have COVID, that's certain. But if it indicates that you don't have COVID, it doesn't mean that's certain. You might need to take the test more than once. And I wonder, now that we've gone through so many variants, whether these original uh, round of tests are still valid and uh, whether or not there are others that have come along that are updated and more accurate. This is actually a good question. It's a common question as well. Um, for all the tests that are currently licensed, there has been some ongoing testing and intermittently someone will publish kind of a summary of where we're at with the sensitivity of the tests. I've only seen one test where it was reported that Omicron was less sensitive, and I think that was withdrawn from the market. The vast majority of the antigen tests, because an antigen is kind of a big target, like it's like the whole protein, um, the vast majority of antigen tests seem to perform about the same for the new variants. And with, you know, all along, it's been a question of if you get enough material on the swab for the test to be positive or not, which is why there is a recommendation to do repeat test if it seems likely that you have it. 
Um, but it hasn't seemed to have been decreased over time. And so those same tests should be still good. The other thing that happens is when things are initially manufactured, they put a expiry date on them. And sometimes the expiry date actually ends up getting extended because they pull out tests and retest them to make sure they're still functioning well. And so as far as I know, most of the tests that have still been issued are a very reasonable test to do if you suspect you have COVID. And as you noted, if it's negative, but it seems like it very much could be COVID, it is worth retesting because if people are not getting tested, people who are at high risk of, of severe infection would not then be able to access treatment in most provinces. And so it still is valuable to do the testing if you are someone who would be eligible for treatment. David, thank you very much for the question. And Dr. Saxinger, that brings up a point that actually I, I sometimes forget about, and I think it's it's, a, it's worth underscoring, and that is because they're just like in my sort of circle, I hear so little about COVID now, and and I think people's guard guards are down. But if somebody does have COVID and they do fall into certain categories like uh, immunocompromised, for example, there are reasons for them to know they have COVID and to seek out treatments, right? Absolutely. And there's been no, like the, the treatments that are currently recommended and available are antivirals that are broadly effective against all the variants that have come along. And so the treatments are not specific to a strain. They still offer a real benefit in people who are at high risk of severe infection. And especially, you know, thinking back to the caller who said that, you know, if someone has a medical condition and they're getting nervous because it's been a long time since their last vaccine, you know, whether they get vaccinated or not, they would still be eligible for treatment um, if they get infected. And so I, I do think that it's worth bringing that up again, because it has been flying under the radar a lot. Yeah, sure has. Uh, our next caller is Nicholas Smith, who is in Sudbury, Ontario. Hi, Nicholas. Hi, how's it going? Good, good. What's your question for Dr. Saxinger? So my question is, in 2021, Theresa Tam and the CDC explained COVID was airborne and that workers would now need tight-fitting masks to be effectively protected. Why is the importance of using N95s, KN95s, and especially elastomeric respirators not being promoted? And, and can I ask you, Nicholas, uh, where do you use a mask? Uh, pretty much everywhere I I go. So I, I'll wear it to healthcare settings. I'll wear it sometimes to the grocery store, sometimes to friends as well if I'm not uh, outside. Mm-hmm. And uh, sometimes also while traveling. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's interesting. Uh, Dr. Saxinger, I don't have to tell you, this is one of those topics that uh, uh, a lot of people are not only interested in, but can be fairly controversial. But uh, what would your answer be to Nicholas in terms of uh, why, well, as he puts it, why are Canadians not wearing uh, proper PPE and masks? Well, I, I think that we should upfront say that anyone who chooses to wear a mask at any time, it's a responsible and appropriate thing to do. And hopefully they will not be you know, looked at um, in a negative way by anyone for that, because that has occurred in a few places over time. So mm-hmm. one thing is, you know, if you wear a mask, it's your choice, it's your face. And um, not to, I'm hoping that no one will ever be negative to anyone about that. Um, the second part of it really, I think, has to do with something that the caller identified as well, which is kind of a risk-based approach. And so prioritizing what you do, um, depending on the ambient risk, if I can say it that way, or the forecast, um, I think is a big part of what we see as making this more sustainable for people. And people can tolerate things in a different way. So many people find it easier to tolerate a medical mask than an N95 mask. Some people actually tolerate N95 masks beautifully and have no problems with them. Likewise, the elastomeric masks, there's fit issues for some people and not others. And so I think they're trying to basically look at the population and say, 
you know, what is a sustainable thing to do right now and what is the actual risk right now? And right now, when we look at our numbers across Canada, um, I think it is important to track them um, in real time and carefully, but they're the lowest they've, I feel like I shouldn't say this out loud, but they, they, they remain the lowest they've been for quite a long time, even with reduced testing. Mm-hmm. Percent positivity trends are important to watch. So the risk being low right now and it being summer, I think it would be hard to really put forward a public health necessity for people to wear masks in, you know, everywhere. But I do think we should maintain um, this in the toolbox because if we were seeing especially with the fall and, you know, education starting up again and people getting together in smaller groups again, I think that the threshold to use masks should be lower. I think attention to ventilation um, and, you know, basically air quality remains very important and that there might be a time where we should be actually really doing a public health push for putting masks back into place if the numbers are going in a direction faster than anyone is comfortable with. Mm-hmm. And for individuals at higher risk, they might choose to wear masks with a much lower kind of threshold to make that choice or do it consistently. And I think that's completely appropriate. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, let's go to a question that someone sent us via air check. Warren Rourke on Hornby Island in uh, British Columbia um, asks, should provincial health authorities recommit to updating COVID statistics, particularly vaccine effectiveness? Alberta Health Services, as an example, updated COVID vaccine effectiveness statistics were taken offline over a year ago in July of 2022. So, Dr. Saxinger, not an issue I know a lot about. Um, What's your response to Warren? I do think that it is important to to actually keep abreast of what vaccine effectiveness is. I think that there is a little bit of difficulty with having some data in the public domain without appropriate framing. And so um, I'm always for data transparency and data is meant to be used for knowledge and action. Um, But one thing that's interesting about the vaccine effectiveness data is it's commonly underappreciated that the numbers are additive to what, like they're additive. So you say the fourth dose effectiveness is only 50% and it's waning. That is fourth dose effectiveness compared to people who've had three doses. And so the overall effectiveness compared to someone who's unvaccinated is much, much higher, but that can be commonly misunderstood. It's kind of a very slippery set of concepts. And so I actually think that these data should be made available um, broadly. I also use data as a plural in case anyone wants to take me to task for that. Because <laughs> um, that happens. Um, but it's also correct. So it's okay. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I think that, um, you know, as, as long as we're making sure that with data being available, that it's being explained appropriately, because people will be like, it only adds 30 to 50% now, then why would I ever do that? And, mm-hmm. and reminding people that that's using a smaller number of individuals and it's comparing it to individuals who did not have the fourth or fifth dose. Uh, let's go to Fredericton and Joanne Hare. Hi, Joanne. Good evening. Thanks for taking my call. Yeah, you're very um, welcome. A week ago Saturday, my son-in-law came home from, he's an RCMP, came home from work and uh, wasn't feeling well. So my, uh, his wife, my daughter, told him to put a mask on, and they have very many masks. And he was banned to downstairs. Um, so I've been there with them. Um, I've had uh, five shots. So they have also had five shots. Um, plus, they have a two-year-old granddaughter. Now, he's been very sick. Um, and then on uh, Wednesday, I came back to my place in Fredericton, uh, left their house, and my daughter tested positive um, on Thursday night. So um, I've been te- I haven't had uh, any symptoms. Um, I've, been, I've tested four times. I have a teeny tiny 
tickle in the back of my throat, but I think it's because I'm sticking the swab way back there and it's <laughs> getting irritated, so I don't know uh, how long I should test for. Yeah, that's a great question, Joanne. Dr. Saxinger? Um, I can kind of give you an unofficial answer because I don't know what public health actually says, but most people who've been exposed actually do manifest um, a positive test within four or five days of their last exposure. And so um, you'd be getting close to the time where I would probably say, you know, routine screening wouldn't be necessary, but because people can occasionally have a longer incubation period, it would probably be worth um, doing it if your symptoms changed. But, um, you know, the sensitivity of the test is actually probably highest within the first four or five days as well. And, um, and so I think that you're kind of at the outside edge of where that kind of screening would be important. That was a portion of Cross Country Checkup's AMA about COVID and what we might expect this fall with Dr. Lenora Saxinger, an infectious disease physician at the University of Alberta. If you'd like to listen to yesterday's full two-hour edition of Cross Country Checkup, you can find it by downloading or streaming the podcast at cbc.ca slash checkup or the CBC Listen app. And if you'd like to share comments or appear on the show, you can go to cbc.ca slash aircheck. I'm Ian Hanna-Mansing. Thanks for listening. The next live edition of Checkup airs on CBC Radio 1 and CBC News Network next Sunday. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.